Well, anyone know what book of the Bible we've been going through for the last couple months? Luke. That's right. Luke. Uh, well, we've made a milestone today. Chapter 3 is upon us. So at that rate, I think around 2022, we will be done. Um, thanks for laughing, Kathy. I appreciate the support. Um, I think I, I told myself it was going to be three years to do Luke and Acts. I got to pick up the pace if we're going to do this in three years. Just, just being honest with you guys. But there's a lot in there today. There's a whole lot in there. Uh, excited about it. But uh, as you guys also know, we've been going through the Bible Project videos, and they had made one for Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, but we also have one now. Uh, this is for Luke chapter 3, what we're starting today, and it's going to go all the way through chapter 9. It's about five minutes long, but uh, you're going to love it. So let's watch this together. The Gospel according to Luke began by telling us about the births of John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth. And in the next section of the Gospel, Luke zooms forward in time. So John is now a prophet, and he's leading a renewal movement down at the Jordan River. And all of these Israelites are coming to be baptized, the poor, the rich, tax collectors, even soldiers. Yeah, what's going on here? So all of these people are dedicating themselves to a new way of life. By getting dunked in a river? So long ago, Israel came to inherit this land by crossing through the Jordan River. And God gave them a responsibility. They were called to serve him alone, to love their neighbor, and pursue justice together. And we know from stories in the Old Testament that they failed at this repeatedly. Right. So John's calling Israel to start over, to go back through the river and come out rededicated to their God, ready for the new thing that God's about to do. And so it's within this renewal movement that Jesus first appears. Jesus is baptized by John. And the sky opens up, and a voice from heaven says, You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, God's words here are packed with echoes from the Hebrew scriptures. This first line is from Psalm 2, where God promised that a king would come who would rule in Jerusalem and confront evil among the nations. And then this next line is from the book of the prophet Isaiah, and it refers to the Messiah who would become a servant, suffer and die on Israel's behalf. After this, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days with no food. I mean, that's roughing it. And in this story, Jesus is replaying Israel's 40-year journey through the wilderness, where they failed to trust their God, and so they rebelled. But Jesus succeeded by resisting temptation and trusting God. And so this story is marking Jesus as the one who's going to carry Israel's story forward. After the wilderness, Jesus comes back to the region of Galilee, to his hometown, Nazareth. He's in the synagogue, and he's invited to read from the scriptures. And he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Why to the poor? Well, in Hebrew culture, being poor wasn't just about money. It was more about low social status. So women and children and the sick, people on the margins. And surprisingly, this could include people who had money, like tax collectors. They were considered outsiders, too, and so Jesus is here for them. Then Jesus continues reading. The Lord has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Freedom seems like a big deal for Jesus. Yes, Jesus was freeing people from their sicknesses, from their past, from their shame, and he was freeing them to become a part of God's new kingdom that Jesus said he was bringing into reality. After this, Jesus appoints 12 men from among all of his disciples as leaders to help him in his mission. And that number, 12, it's a 
very intentional symbol of the 12 tribes of Israel. But this is a ragtag bunch of guys. You've got a fisherman, you've got a former tax collector who worked for the Roman occupation. You have a former rebel who fought against the Roman occupation. There's no way these guys are going to get along. Yeah, Jesus intentionally brought together people who were outsiders and sworn enemies. But inside God's kingdom, they're called to reconcile and to live in unity. Following Jesus meant entering a new world order. And so Jesus went on to teach, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you because of me. Jesus even told his disciples to love their enemies, to be strangely generous, even to people they don't like, to forgive and show mercy. This is a radical way of life. And Jesus not only talked about all this, he promised that he would lead the way, that he would be radically generous and forgive and love his enemies by making the ultimate sacrifice, by giving up his life. The last story in this section of Luke is fascinating. Jesus takes some of his disciples up on the mountain. God's glory appears as a bright cloud, and Jesus is suddenly transformed. And there's two other prophets that appear, Moses and Elijah. Yeah, they're the ancient prophets who also experience God's glory on a mountain. And then God speaks from the cloud saying, this is my son, listen to him. Luke is showing us that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He is God's word to Israel. The three of them talk about what Jesus is going to do when he arrives in Jerusalem. What's he going to do? He's going to go to the capital city to be enthroned as Israel's true king, but not in the way that anybody expected. And with that, Jesus' mission up in Galilee comes to an end. And the next part of Luke's gospel begins with his long journey to Jerusalem. So I'm excited. We get to spend the next season of our lives here going through uh, chapter 3 through chapter 9, and uh, it's going to be good. Thanks for joining us today. If you have your Bibles, open them up to chapter 3, verses 1. We're going to go all the way through verse 20 today. Chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 20. Lord Jesus, be with us today. I love your word. I love diving into your word. I love what your son has done as a fulfillment of your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you are here Uh, Thank you for who you are. You are good. You are great. You are faithful. All the things we worshipped you um, during song, Lord, we worship you now in spirit. For you are wonderfully, uh, just, you are just wonderful, Lord, in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so start at the beginning here. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod of Galilee, his brother Philip of Ituria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. All right, so who wrote the book of Luke? Two points. That's right. Luke wrote the book of Luke. I can't even say the book of Luke. The the book, the book, the book of Luke. We're doing that from now on. But he's setting the scene. I I love Luke. He's shown us this political scene. He's also shown us the spiritual scene, right? He's thrown out a bunch of names, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate. You guys have heard of him before. We got Herod. We got Philip. We got Lysanias. We got even some high priests. We got Annas. We got Caiaphas. And I love that about Luke. You got to remember Luke. 
uh, way, this is like months ago, but he was a historian. He was a physician. Even if you look at chapter 1 of Luke, he said, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything, in, uh, I have given you an orderly account uh, that you would know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Carefully investigated, orderly account, so you can know the certainty of the things You've been taught. So here it is, chapter 3. After careful investigation and orderly account, we now see Jesus written and put into the scene of this political, spiritual uh, environment. And I want you to notice he, he doesn't just talk about uh, the Jewish leaders of the time, right? He doesn't just focus on the Jewish rulers. No, he's talking about the very leader of the Roman Empire. Did you, did you catch that one? What was his name again? It starts with a T. Tiberius, right? And he was the successor of, uh, what's that guy's name? It starts with an A, Caesar Augustus. And maybe you heard about him, learned about him in your history class. And Luke is showing us that this Messiah, he's coming on the scene, not just for something small that's happening in some small region in this tiny Roman province in the small area of Judea. No, he's saying this Messiah is coming to the world. He's coming to everything, everyone, everywhere. And he says, verse 2, in this scene where this Messiah comes for everyone, everything, everywhere, in verse 2, he says, the word of God came to John. Remember John? We talked a lot about John in the last couple of months. He came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Remember Zechariah, remember Elizabeth, you even saw it in the video there. Their faithfulness to God, they were devout followers of God. They, they were obedient. Remember that uh, passage when the people tried to get him to name their son after Zechariah and they said, no, we're obeying the Lord. His name is John. But now that baby is grown up. Here he is. That, that's the one we've been talking about, church. He's all grown up. And the word of God comes to him. The word of God comes to him. By the way, this is so important. If you're a parent here today, be faithful to God. Be faithful to God. Obey the Lord. Obey His Word. Take seriously the responsibility that you have to raise up your children according to God's commands. Because just as the Word of God has come to you, the Word of God is going to come to them as well. And I, it's just so important that we as parents have done all that we can to prepare them to receive that Word of God. I'll never forget, many of you guys have heard of the guy named Andy Stanley, right? Pretty cool leadership guy in the church these days, but he says this, it was at a conference I was at down in California, and, and I know, never forget this. He said, your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. I want to say that again. It's so good. Your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Amen. Yeah, amen. And, and you see that here in this passage Today, verse 3 goes on to tell us that all the country around the Jordan, he was, he was moving around preaching this baptism and repentance, baptism and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And, and then Luke records, he's uh, quoting at this point Isaiah chapter 40, and, he, and you guys have heard this, it's familiar to us. He says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads, they become straight, the rough ways smooth. And verse 6 all people will see God's salvation. Verse 6 there, that's Isaiah 40, verse 5. Uh, he's keeping, again, with this uh, theme that Luke has, that he has brought salvation to everyone, everywhere. We, we heard in, I think it was about three weeks ago, Simeon. Remember Simeon? Uh, remember that devout life that Simeon had lived? He wasn't going to die until he saw uh, the Messiah. And, and, if, and, and when we read that, he said the Messiah would be both the glory of Israel 
But he also said he would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. I want you to see this. Catch this, church. Luke is so very clear in the way that he writes this carefully investigated, orderly account. Luke 2, verse 10, it is good news of great joy for all the people. Luke 2, 32, it is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Luke 3, 6, it is that all people will see God's salvation. Church, would you say all people? All people. That includes your neighbor. That includes your boss. Even that boss. It includes your friends. It includes your classmates. All people would receive the good news of Jesus. Repeat after me. Jesus, he's the good news of great joy for all the people. Amen. All right, verse 7. Luke begins to describe how John is out there in the wilderness and he's preaching. It's kind of fun in the Gospel of Luke. You actually get to see what some of his preaching sounded like, and that, that's kind of fun. But wow, what a preacher John the Baptist is. In fact, if you want to put up chapter uh, uh, 3, verse 7, the very first words that the Gospel of Luke records from John the Baptist, anyone want to tell them to me? Say it like you mean it. <laughs> hey, come on now, watch out. Hey, you know, that, that kind of hurts my heart, calling me a brood of vipers. Now, that's the first words, church. Brood of vipers. Can you imagine if that's how I would have started today? Good morning, you brood of vipers. No one would be left. No one would be left. But, but he comes in and he, and he has a powerful message about how to live in God's kingdom. You, you, again, you saw some of that explained in the beginning of that video. But then he comes in with a pretty serious warning. He, he warns them of impeding judgment. Right? If you, if you look in, in that scripture, he says, The axe is already at the roots of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit, what's going to happen? It will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then verses 10 through 14, he gives instructions on how to live. He gives instructions how to treat one another, how to love one another. He goes, you got two coats, you got two shirts, what should you do? You should give one to another person. You have a lot of food, another person doesn't have any food, what should you do? You should share with someone who doesn't have any. And it's, it's a powerful message. You see John calling people out, right? Calling people out to where following his teaching, if you obey his teaching, this is radically going to change these people. It's going to radically change their society. Their, this teaching, it's bringing people in line with things of, of God's justice, of God's righteousness, uh, really with the ethics of God's kingdom. Again, if you have your Bible, smartphones, we'll, we'll put it up on the screen. But just look as well at who this message is for. This, this message, it's for everybody, right? It's, it's whether you're a tax collector. If, if you're a tax collector, hey, just don't collect more than you're required to. If you're a soldier, well, a soldier can be in the kingdom of God. Oh, absolutely, soldiers, come here. If you're a soldier, just don't extort money, right? Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay, whoever you are. John is describing, he's teaching what it looks like to live under God's authority and God's kingdom. And then verse 15, it says, they were waiting expectantly. Have you ever waited expectantly for something? Just waiting, and they were wondering in their hearts, is this the guy, right? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one we've been waiting for? So something's moving within them, right? Something's stirring. They're recognizing that something's going on here, right? Who is this guy? Is he the Messiah? But then John says, listen up. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I, he's going to come. And the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Not even worthy to untie 
his sandals. Now, he's making a point there, church. He's making a point about who Jesus is compared to who he is. And, and everybody there would have understood the comparison. We might not understand, but they would have understood. See, to untie a sandal, that was something only a slave would do. And yet John says, you know what? I'm not even worthy to do that. You following? Right? They understood what, what that meant, what John was saying compared to who Jesus is, compared to who John is. They understood this. And, and what he's saying is, you got to listen up, crowd that came out to this wilderness to follow me. Yeah, you think like I'm some hotshot guy. Yeah, this guy that's coming, like in comparison, there is no comparison. No comparison. And that's incredible to me, and I'll explain why. Because you got to remember at this point, Jesus hasn't started his ministry yet, has he? We all, we all tracking with me, right? We saw in the video he hasn't been baptized yet with the Holy Spirit coming upon him and all that stuff. So who's the guy at this point? Who's the guy? John is the guy. John's ministry is the greatest. He is the talk of the town. People are coming from all over the place. You remember, uh, you can see in Matthew chapter 3, verse 5, he says, People went out to him from Jerusalem, from Judea, from the whole region of the Jordan. Have you checked out John yet? Have you been through the wilderness? you got to go. He is a celebrity church. And then he says, but the one... Who's coming? I'm not even on the same playing field. He's beyond anything that you could think or imagine. This is key. I think in that moment, with that statement, you've got you to get this. What is he doing? He is exalting Christ. Exalting Christ. And I was thinking about it this week. I don't know why. Just My brain can't stop. I was thinking about fame. I was thinking about celebrity. I was thinking about crowds, influence, power, things of that nature. And as humans, we all struggle with those kinds of things. You, you see it in our world, maybe because I've been reading a lot of news lately. You just see it with celebrities. They're struggling, right? They're struggling with things of fame and notoriety and recognition. And for us, I mean, I guess most of us in this room could be like, well, you know, I'm not famous. Nobody cares what I say or do. Right? I don't struggle with fame or celebrity but i don't care who you are there's always a temptation in any setting even in this small church in the small town of edgewood there's a temptation to allow things of arrogance boastfulness pride as subtle as it might be to rise up within us and yet the bible's so clear right we know pride comes before the fall and john i think he lays out this beautiful example for what it looks like to walk humbly with our God. John keeps, you know, just think about it, John keeps the fame, the notoriety, the light. He, he keeps all of that on the one who deserves it all. So when people begin to think, yeah, maybe, maybe he's the one, right? Maybe he's the one we should praise. Maybe he's the one we should worship. He quickly turns it to Jesus. Quickly. Much of my life, uh, my life verse, along with Galatians 5.13 that talks about the freedom we have in Christ, uh, the other huge life verse for me has been John chapter 3, verse 30. It's, it's by the same guy, Zachariah's son, John the Baptist. It's so simple and yet so profound, and, and I think it's a healthy way to live this life. And it simply says this, he must increase. Who's he talking about right there? Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. Would you say that with me? He must increase, but I must decrease. E.V. Hill, this famous pastor, I love this story, he tells of this ministry of an elderly woman at his church, and she was hard on the preachers. She would sit in the front row. I, I've noticed uh, no one sits in our front rows, and after hearing this story, I, I'm, I'm thankful for that, because as soon as the preacher would get going, she'd yell, get him up! 
referring to Christ, right? Referring to Jesus. And after a few minutes, and she didn't think that there was enough of Jesus and Christ in the sermon, she'd shout again, get him up. And he would say, if a preacher did not get him up, he was in for a really long, hard day. And you see it in today's passage, don't you? Right? John's getting this admiration. He's getting this notoriety, this fame. They're ready to call him. I mean, they're ready to anoint him as the Messiah. And instead, his response is what? To get Christ up. He exalts Christ that he would increase, that we would decrease. I hope all of us can learn from that in our own lives. Every one of you have an area where you can apply that, right? I don't need you to admit it to me, but every one of us has those areas. I don't know what that looks like for you, but it's so important that that would be the attitude of our lives to get him up, right? Just think about it. Think about maybe in your family. Think about in your job. Think about it in your marriage. Think about it in your school. Think about it just in your life that you would get him up where he is exalted instead of us. I love what Mary put on the back of our van. I'm going to show you a picture. This is not uh, to tell tell you to tell me that I need a car wash. I get that. It's pretty bad. But um, so it says hecky, right? What, what, What on earth does hecky mean? Well, actually, it says he is greater than I. He is great. I know you always wondered what was on the back of our van, but he is greater than I. And, and church, could we just make sure that in everything, in every way, that he would always be greater than us. All right. Then at the end of Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John says this. He says, he will baptize you. Again, who is he? He will baptize you. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. <clears throat> and so where John's baptism is an outward confession of repentance, which is good, it's powerful, it's right. But John is telling people that Jesus is going to come on the scene and he's going to baptize and his baptism is going straight to the heart. Right? He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and you will be forever changed from the inside out, baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 17, he says his winnowing fork. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chafe with unquenchable fire. By the way, in that verse, just keep it up on the screen, John is not saying that the Messiah is a really good farmer. John's not talking about wheat. Who's he talking about? He's talking, yeah, he's talking about people. He's talking about you and me. Jesus is going to come. He's going to gather the, the wheat. He's going to burn up the chafe with fire. In, in case you're wondering, you don't want to be the chafe. You want to be the wheat. Praise the Lord that we're wheat, right? Praise the Lord that as you confess the Lord as Savior, as you give him your life, you believe in him, you follow his commands, you become wheat. Praise the Lord that you've been saved from unquenchable fire. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But, you know, again, I, I think this makes me think of, again, a few weeks ago, Simeon. Remember, I don't know if you guys remember what we talked about, but remember he said that Jesus, the one coming on the scene, he would cause the rise and fall of many. Remember that when he prophesied that? The rise and fall. And I asked the question then, I asked the same question today, uh, and you have to answer it for yourself. I, your pastor can't answer it, your spouse can't answer it. This is between you and the Lord, but... Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? And and the answer to that question has eternal implications. Who is Jesus? I mean, come on. This isn't 
a game, right? This isn't just some neat religious thing we do where we sing some neat songs and we eat some good snacks and we feel good about ourselves. Jesus reveals the heart of man, of every one of us. He's the dividing line, the rise and the fall of many. And what you think about Jesus, your answer to who he is, it has eternal significance. Are you going to be the wheat or the chaff? By the way, and and I, I know you know this, but this is why it's so important that you live radical lives for Christ. That your loved ones, that your friends and your family would, would get to witness and see what it looks like to live your life for Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because it's important that they see a change in you. That they notice a change in you, a light in you. That's When you go to Thanksgiving and you act like you've always acted, church, that is not what we're talking about here. That you would be changed and different in the way you speak to them, in the way you treat them. In the way you look even, right? I mean, some of us just have that, that grumpy face. And, and I just tell you, like, wow, if that's what Jesus does in a life, I'm not sure I want it. But Jesus has done a change in you. And that they would see that, that the light would shine so brightly through you, within you, all around you. That it would challenge them. They'd say, man, tell me more. I want what you have. Because what your loved ones think about Jesus It has eternal implications for their lives. And we must give our friends, our families, our our co-workers, our spouses, our children, every opportunity to turn to Jesus that they might be collected into the house of God and not burned in unquenchable fire. All right, then Luke writes and he says, with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. He exhorted So he urged, he strongly encouraged the people and proclaimed the good news to them. (coughs) And you can just picture John, again, he's out there in the wilderness being pretty radical, preaching kind of an oddball, devoted to the Lord. And he's calling them out and he's saying, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Get right with God. Come on. Right? You can just hear him. Come on. Get ready. Get ready. He's coming. Get ready. He's coming. Whoever you think I am. Compared to who's coming, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Get ready. The Lord is coming. And he's coming to collect his people. He's coming to judge the world. Even in 2019, we know Jesus is coming again. Did you know that? Whether you want him to or not, he's coming. He's coming. He's coming to judge the world. And yet we also know that he came to save the world. And he's entrusted you and me with this message of salvation. And so our message, what we say, what we do, it needs to be clear to everyone around us. God loves you. He wants to save you. He wants to rescue you. If you believe in his son, you can find eternal life in him. You can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is good news. It's good news. He's coming back to judge the world. So don't wait any longer. Get right with the Lord and come to Jesus. But then this passage, and I want to close with this, which up to this point it's been kind of exciting, like a lot of energy, kind of like aggressive, but you know, exciting nonetheless. 
Um, you know, yeah, he's calling you vipers and stuff like that. But he's calling you to repentance, which is awesome and exciting. And he's kind of preparing this way for the Messiah, which that's kind of an exciting uh, thing to think about the Messiah coming. And he's proclaiming and preaching this good news of the kingdom of God. And, and, and it's like, yeah, and yes, and we've got to go and see this guy. And it's just, yeah, and just building and building and building. And then the passage ends with verse 19 and 20, and it says this. But when John rebuked Herod because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he'd done. You kind of want to know what that list was, right? Just all the other evil things. Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. See, remember, John's message, it's a message of repentance. Repent. Well, what would you repent of? You repent of sins, right? We already read that, Luke 3, 3. He went throughout all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And you can just imagine, he brings this message of repentance to Herod, right? Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great? Mentioned him way back in chapter 1, verse 5. Well, this is his son. John rebukes him for marrying Herodias. Herodias, who's the daughter of one of Herod's brothers, Aristopulus. And she's already married to another brother. I get it. It's very confusing at this point. Right? She's, so think of it. She's married to her uncle. I'm not going to get into the details. I know I've lost half of you by now. But she's married to her uncle. And now her other uncle, Herod Antipas, convinces her to divorce his brother and marry him instead. Well, this is a mess. Can we just say that? It's a mess. It's violated Jewish laws in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16. We're told that you can't do this, right? You can't be with your brother's wife. And so John is calling him out for that specifically, but also it sounds like a whole list of other things that he's done. And at that point, Herod fell to his knees, repented, asked the Lord for forgiveness, and served the Lord all the days of his life. Oh, never mind. (laughs) No, he locked him up in the prison. He locked him up. And we've read the rest of the story. We know he ends up dying. He he loses his life over this. And I want to close with this. It's this weird thing that's happening in American Christianity that says if you follow the Lord, if you do what he says, if you are devout and just radically follow him, proclaim his good news like John, that you're going to live this long, pain-free, worry-free, wealthy, healthy life. Life in the name of Jesus. And I, I addressed this a lot in my message, hashtag blessed. If you want to hear more about that, go to our podcast, hashtag blessed. And none of us would like to admit it, but for many Christians, that's just the underlying assumption of what life is, right? What, that's what it means to follow Christ. And the reason I know this is because I get to witness Christians being extremely surprised and shocked when hard things happen. Surprise! Like they didn't know that sometimes bad things happen to Christians. Right? Where's God? Or I thought God was good. I thought God loved me. And God's big enough for all that. We've all asked those questions. We're human. We're emotional. We're alive, right? And we express those emotions to God. He's big enough to handle it. Even your anger. He's big enough to handle all that. But as humans, what's shocking to me is the level of being surprised when bad things happen to followers of Christ. And we need to really look at this guy. This guy's devoted. He's dedicated. John the Baptist 
He's done nothing wrong. In fact, if we were to play the comparison game between who's more devout, you or John, sorry, you lose. John wins. He has served the Lord well. He's been faithful beyond any of us in this room. He's given up everything for Christ. And we know he's going to end up losing his life for Christ. And yet as we close today, looking at his life, I just want to share two biblical truths that come to mind. First one is this, chapter 8 of the book of Mark, verses 34 and 35. Then he called the crowd to him, this is Jesus, along with his disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. John's the perfect example of someone who believes salvation is only found in Jesus. And he gives up everything for his Savior. Everything. And so John is the wheat. That the father collects into his house. John the Baptist, by the way, church, I don't know if you know this. He is going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But you got to hear this. There's a great cost to discipleship. By the way, this isn't my notes, but the other thing that drives me nuts is American Christians think earth is better than heaven. I'm just convinced. And until you believe that heaven is actually better than earth, you're not going to want to give up anything. How good is your God? we got to learn how to trust him. Second one is this, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I'll read this to you. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. It's a good one to put up in your bathroom. Instead, be very glad. Oh, add that part too. Be glad. For these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you're going to be blessed. For the glorious Spirit of God rests on you. Man, that's good. If you suffer, however, if, don't suffer because you're a murderer, right? Or because you're stealing or making trouble or prying into other people's affairs. That's a foolish way to suffer, right? But there's no shame to suffer for being a Christian, right? Praise God for the privilege of being called by His name. For the time has come for judgment. And it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? So, if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, can you believe this is in the Bible, church? Like, we, we, don't, even, we don't even hear, I could go 50 years in a church in America and never hear this. If you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, what does he say? Keep on going. Keep on doing what's right. Keep on going. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Keep it going. You got this. The Lord will give you strength to do what he's called you to do. That the enemy isn't going to stop even one thing that he has made you and created you to do in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Keep on doing it. And trust your life to the Lord who created the one who made you. Trust in him, for he will never fail you. Hallelujah. And if you're suffering, and many of you are suffering, keep doing what is right. Keep on keeping on. 
Trust your life to the Lord and you will dwell in the house of God forever. And we're going to see how this plays out in John's life. And I'm looking forward to preaching through some of that. But again, just as we close, the question I'd have for you is just, are you willing to lose your life for Christ that you might gain eternal life in him? Are you willing to keep doing what is right, even when it's really hard? Are you willing to do hard things? And I want you to wrestle with those questions. Are you surprised when trials come? Do the words shift that come out of your mouth when the trials come? Do you forget what it means to love others and forgive others when the trials come? As Christians, we should not be surprised. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it even always feels good. I mean, there's pain, there's agony, there's sorrow. Again, as humans, we feel all of that. But by the power of God that lives within you, church, trust in the Lord. Place your life in his hands. Know that he will never, ever, ever fail you. Church, you can't give out God. Even if you give him your life, he's still going to give you more in the life to come. You can't outgive God. And for most of us, come on, let's be honest, in this room, dying for Christ or the, you know, giving up our lives or laying, losing our lives for Christ, it's probably not going to mean being executed. Right? It's probably not going to mean John the Baptist being beheaded before Herod. But for a lot of Christians throughout history, in the 2,000-year history of church, that's exactly what it meant. And just look at the disciples. Look at the 2,000-year history of Christian martyrs. Millions have been killed because they love Jesus. Killed because they love God and they love others. So to conclude this morning, if, if you could, I just want you to take a moment to be quiet before the Lord. For each of us to truly count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. That we want to go through the ups and downs of life shocked and surprised. But we'd be grounded We'd be rooted in Christ. I want us to spend some time reflecting on this question again. Who is Jesus to me? Is he here to serve you and just give all the answers to your needs? Or are you here to serve him? Who's God in the equation of your life? We got Some of us, we got that flipped. We're this big God trying to get this mini God to serve us in all our needs. He is God, and we come underneath His authority, His kingdom, to serve Him, even when it's hard. Are you tossed to and fro, shocked and surprised, just griping and grumbling about the life that He's given you? Or are you allowing your breath to be taken away that I am alive today? Are you living in awe and wonder of miracle upon miracle upon miracle that we are walking and talking? We're going to eat some food, drink some coffee, drive in our cars. We have a car. Are you kidding me? The miracles of the Lord, are you just going to always view less than and less than? I don't have this, and he didn't heal this, and he didn't do that. Lord, forgive us. Who is Jesus 
Is he a spiritual ATM machine in the sky, some spiritual genie, or is he the one who is worthy of all of our affection, good, bad, or ugly, in all circumstances, worthy of praise and devotion and a labor of love? I talked to you guys about that. Remember I said, you know what labor means in the Greek? It means a weariness. And weariness is like a bad word in the American church. We don't want to hear that even. But that we would love to the extent of a labor, of a weariness, of being poured out for the Lord. Who is Jesus to you? Is he worthy of your weariness? Is he worthy of your labor? Or is he just something to try to make all the things feel good and look good? Healthy, wealthy, and wise. Who is Jesus? And I hope that all of us could just answer everything, right? That he's everything. That Jesus is everything. And that we would just surrender the rest of it. The the debate, the arguments, the... The scale of like, well, he did this, but he didn't do that. You know, just get rid of it all. And just say, God, I place my life into your hands because who am I without you? I'm nothing. I'm a vapor. I'm a flower that comes and goes in a twinkle of an eye. With you, Jesus, I have something. With you, Jesus, I get to be wheat. With you, Jesus, I get to be collected into the house of God and dwell with my maker forever and ever. So the Lord is speaking and he's asking each one of us as followers. I just want you to know this. This is scriptural. He's asking you for your life. He wants your life. And he doesn't want just some of it. He wants all of it. He doesn't want your life like after your retirement is set. Or after the kids are out of the house, or after you get over the illness, or after the schooling is done, or after the bills are paid. No, he's calling you today into a deeper walk with Jesus. Because you were made for wonderful things. You were made for plans and purposes for his kingdom and for his glory. To do spectacular things beyond what you could ever think or imagine. Things that he has created you to do. And not tomorrow, but today in the mighty name of Jesus. So who is Jesus? And I, this is for me as much as you for you. I, I wrote this. I said, if it's that Jesus is everything, then we need to repent. And we need to turn from anything else that we've been living for besides Jesus. And give him our lives. To lift him up. That he would increase. That we would decrease. Because he who loses his or her life for Jesus will gain eternal life in Him. So let's just bow before the Lord. Spend this time with Jesus. Thank you, Lord.